Welcome to another edition of the NCBI podcast. I'm June Tinsley, Head of Communications and Advocacy with NCBI. And today I have the pleasure of having a, a chat with Stuart Lawler, who is presently working with Sight and Sound and previously was an NCBI employee. Um, and I'm delighted to have a, a chat with him about music, Braille and, and everything in between. So very welcome, Stuart, and thanks for taking the time to have a chat with me. Hi, June. Thanks a million. Great to be here on your podcast. Good, good, good. Um, and obviously our, our paths have crossed on a, a number of occasions, Stuart, but for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. So as you said, I'm uh, I'm Stuart Lawler. I'm, uh, as I was about to say, kind of in, in my mid-40s. Now that has turned to late 40s, it's kind of scarily how quickly time moves <laughs> on. So I can't even say mid-40s anymore. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm totally blind and I, I'm one of the I can't remember what the percentage is now. It's, I think, less than 5% of people who, because obviously we use the term blind very broadly, don't we, where where people who have no um, light perception. So I um, I have an eye condition called retinoblastoma, which is better known as childhood eye cancer. Uh, so when I was about eight weeks old, um, it was noted that I wasn't um, I wasn't reacting to any sort of stimulus around light. And when they did an investigation at the eye and ear, they discovered a tumour on the optic nerve, which meant my eyes um, had to be removed at 11 and 16 weeks, I think, respectively. So, um, yeah, I'm totally blind. The Obviously, if that operation hadn't taken place, it would have been a massive brain tumour and we wouldn't be speaking today. Sure. Um, so I live in Dublin, in in, in Drumcondra, and um, uh, quite near to NCBI, actually. And I uh, I work for a company called Sight and Sound Technology. We're an assistive technology company and I'm um, head of digital content. So I support a lot of our um, online presence, both here and in the UK. And I also manage the Irish uh, part of Sight and Sound Technology. And as you as you mentioned previously to that, I worked at the NCBI for many years and held a couple of positions there. Most recently, I suppose I was um, I was the equivalent of the CTO uh, what your colleague Kyron O'Mahony is doing now. And, um, you know, we, we did some some really interesting stuff. Um, I have a I have a three year old son um, and uh, his name is Adam. And I am the youngest of three. Uh, sorry, I am the eldest of three. Uh, I have twin sisters who are not um, who are not visually impaired. So I'm the, the only blind one in our family. My parents live in Kildare and I, I grew up in Kildare and uh, went to school um, in Dublin. And uh, I've, yeah, that's that's kind of me. Sounds like a busy life, Stuart, in fairness, with um, jobs and parenting and family and life. And um, is there any time for some hobbies or passions that you have? Um, yeah, I suppose, you know, I, I, I love travel when I can travel. And I have been lucky in over over the years to be able to do some travel for work. It's kind of funny uh, since COVID, I'm not sure that I want to travel quite as much as I have been because I felt that maybe there isn't the same need. You know, we, we've been we spent our lives traveling to meetings for half a day and going through airports. And I, I suppose suddenly we realize we're doing all these things online. But okay. uh, yeah, in terms of um, uh, hobbies, I enjoy reading, enjoy getting out in the fresh air for walking. And um, I really enjoy music. I um, I studied music when I left college as my uh, primary degree um, at UCC, and I um, 
I, I still play piano very occasionally when nobody is listening. And um, I'm a bit, I'm a big, um, I have a big interest in, in music literacy, I suppose, for blind people. And I have been supporting a, a part of my professional life, I suppose, people to learn Braille music, uh, especially in the school system. And um, I'll come back to that in one second, but I'm just curious there, you mentioned about travel. Yeah. Um, and as you rightly say, the, one of the strange benefits of COVID is that we now are very much um, occupying the digital world as opposed to having to go to physical meetings. But my question to you is, of the different places you've visited, which would you describe as being kind of a, a front runner in the area of being very accessible and inclusive to someone who's blind? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, so I, I remember the very first time I ever went to the States in 2002, uh, no, 2001. And I went to an exhibition that's still around called CSUN. It's run by the California State University. And it was in um, it was in Los Angeles in uh, um, the LAX Marriott. So right next to the airport. So we did a whatever, 12 hour flight from Dublin landed in Los Angeles and the first thing getting out, going out into the street just outside the airport where the taxi rank was and all these horns beeping. It was just like watching an episode of Law and Order. It was everything <laughs> you imagine about America. And there was a certain amount of tackiness as well. But going into the restaurant, getting something to eat, I remember going into this um, Denny's, as it was at the time, a big chain of fast food restaurants yeah. in the States. And the guy said to me, would you like a Braille menu? I couldn't believe the braille menu. Never seen a braille menu before, and handed me the braille menu. And I remember I read it from you know from front to back, um, because for the first time I could read a menu. Not only you know you didn't have to ask for a menu. Someone came over and handed you a braille menu. And these these guys, you know, that's normal for them. That was one of my most I suppose um, accessible times traveling. Realizing that that this is not this is no different. And um, as someone who, who is not familiar with Braille, is there a, a difference between um, Braille that's used in America versus Braille that's used in Ireland or England? Thankfully not. Being... Yeah, thankfully not anymore because we have introduced unified English Braille. So the Braille code is now unified throughout the English speaking throughout the English speaking countries. But it's a great question, uh, June, because back in two thousand and one there was a difference, uh, not not okay. hugely different, I suppose, but there were some little differences. So one of them was for a long time here, and and I don't know why this is, by the way, but for a long time here and in the UK we never used capital letters. And 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 you know you as a as a sighted person may think that that very bizarre and you'd be right to think it bizarre, because the the next question someone asks is this, how do blind people ever know where capital letters are used? How do people understand how to form sentences and you know how to okay. write properly? And that has all sorts of other um, challenges. Then if you're trying to find work or you know that you kind of want to be able to show that you can do things the same way as anybody else. Um, we were I was part of a group um, over the last couple of years who uh, oversaw the transition to the new um, unified English Braille code. It's not without its controversy for some long time, long time Braille readers who feel that the changes um, are not very sensible, but actually there is a logic. And the key thing is unifying the Braille code wherever you are in the world. When you pick up a piece of Braille, it will be it will look and feel uh, the same and have the same structure and logic. 
which uh, then lends itself to greater in inclusion and uh, participation for people who are blind regardless of other language of origin. Absolutely. And I suppose that's really what we want, isn't it? And, and we want to make sure people can be um, active participants in in society and in, in whatever they want to do on their terms. And Braille definitely affords you the opportunity to do that. 100%. And then talk to me a little bit about, as you mentioned there, um, music and uh, um, reading music, which is a, a, a challenge in and of itself, but using Braille to read music. How, how does that go about? Yeah, so Braille music is actually one of the, would you believe, was one of the very early Braille codes um, that was created. And not many people know this, but Braille music was actually invented by Louis Braille as well. Louis Braille was a musician. He used to play the organ in a church in Paris. Yeah, yeah. So he developed he developed the Braille code, obviously, and the whole story of the of uh, Louis Braille and the Braille code and how that all came about is, is fascinating as well. Yes. Um, and sort of then in parallel, he developed Braille music and um, it, it it kind of operates on a in a similar way to the Braille code. There are obviously some differences. Um, and signs that mean one thing in, um, in, in, in Braille itself will mean a slightly different thing in Braille music. Um, but again, when in particular for kids who are young, they just soak this stuff up. You know, they can learn literary English Braille, maths, Irish and music and probably what other, whatever other foreign language they're doing all at the same time without any yeah, huge true. problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, exactly. So there's a there's a real um, there it, there's there's lots of stuff out there in terms of music braille. Um, there's some very interesting research at the moment as well going on going on with making music braille um, and technology more um, integrated. I suppose um, there's a group called the Daisy Consortium who are doing a, a really interesting piece of research on making braille music more um, accessible for users, but also for producers of music, because one of the challenges in the past has been getting Braille music. If it's not produced already, how do you get it produced? And it was quite timely and quite expensive. So there's lots of good things happening with that as well. Um, is it used much in, in Ireland, Dragon? Uh, it's, it's, it's used more than it was, which is good. I mean, um, historically, I suppose it would have been taught in the 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 school for the blind, I suppose, let's say, um, yeah. where 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 maybe a lot of people might have been over the years. Now we're seeing it being integrated into the mainstream service, uh, thanks to the work of the visiting teacher service who do a, a really great job all over the country and with some very hardworking teachers and special needs assistants and parents, of course, as well, all of whom play a vital role. And then as part of my work with sight and sound, I suppose I get to provide a little bit of input into that as well. And it's so gratifying to see all those cogs, you know, turning to to make um, an educational experience work for a child in in a, 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 a mainstream setting. And just in terms of a, a pupil learning an instrument who is uh, blind or vision impaired, um, is there adaptations that they need in order to be able to either see the keys or appropriately feel the strings or whatever um, and do you feel that the teachers are adequately equipped to support students with low vision? Um, so I think for for blind 
children, it's there's not actually a whole lot required. So, for example, when you're learning the piano, there's no adaptations. I have heard of some people who put marks on keys, you know, maybe they might put um, a sticker on, bump on exactly yeah. or bump ons on something. Yeah. So they're easier to locate. If that works, that's great. Why not? Um, so it's, again, very much an individual, um, an individual choice. But I think people tend to when, when it's low vision, then there may be a there may be some more challenges around contrast. And it, I suppose as well, it depends on the instrument right. as uh, in terms of the teachers and how well resourced they are. There is no doubt that teachers are so willing to get into this stuff. They want to understand. Ultimately, they want to help their their students do the very best they can. Yeah. Um, time is precious in the school system, obviously, and there is not enough of it. There's not enough hours in the day for people. Um, so it's about trying to make sure that people are connected with the supports they need, whether that's through sight and sound or through NCBI or through, you know, child vision or wh whoever it is to make sure that they can provide them with um, with the with with the with the support that they need at the time. And interestingly, I had the pleasure on one of my previous podcasts to um, talk to a, a lady who's vision impaired and is a piano teacher. Um, and she was actually crediting COVID as an opportunity to kind of um, Im improve her student base, essentially, um, of students learning how to play piano. Because um, with low vision, she was able to tilt the camera and zoom the camera in um, quite in detail to be able to hover over the students' fingers as they were learning the, the instrument. It's funny, isn't it? And I actually I, I listened to that interview because it was and it was really good. Um, one of the things I that I certainly observed during COVID in relation to Braille music, June, going back to that for a moment, is that I think COVID promoted Braille music in a way that we would have never believed because suddenly people were learning at home. We were doing Zoom calls with maybe a visiting teacher who was obviously uh, on their own in their own home. Uh, a student with their parent, maybe an SNA in another house, and we're all online on Zoom and yeah. parents got much more involved in that learning and kind of, I think some of them realised this is kind of fun. It's very different to what we do normally. So yeah. let's all try and do it together. And suddenly there's a bit more of an appetite for Braille music, but I think for Braille in general and, and even broadening that more for just understanding the challenges that, that children with sight loss face. And as you rightly say, um, you're clearly a, a champion of, of Braille in its multiple formats. Um, and when I met you recently, you were um, working away with your digital Braille reader. And it's just something that kind of fascinates me. Um, and I suppose talk to us a little bit about your experience of how technology has advanced Braille. Yeah, so I suppose one of the challenges we all faced in school, those of us of a certain era, and actually not even of a certain era, I'm talking to kids still nowadays who have huge volumes of Braille that they have to carry around with them maybe for their maths book, you know, um, was the all this paper. And now we can, you know, we can, uh, we can digitize so much of our reading material uh, on, a, on a Braille display, uh, carry it around with us. The, the 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 strives that have been made, I suppose, in both in technology and mainstream technology vendors making their technology accessible to be able to connect with specialist technology, like for example, a braille display, means that you can just log on to Kindle and read a book that's out at the same on the same day as everybody else gets yeah. it. 
yeah. without having to go to the expense of getting a Braille copy produced. And that also frees up, frees up, for example, places like the transcription services within NCBI to do other things, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what we what we now need to do, I think, is get this specialist technology into more people's hands who need it so that everybody gets a chance. And again, the education system, that's working quite well. And, you know, the Department of Education are, are really doing good work to make sure that that funding is available for children. Uh, as our Department of Social Protection for people in the workplace. But I think there's a there's a bigger point as well, um, June, to be made around just Braille in general. And, you know, we, we always talk about the high numbers of people uh, in the blind, low vision community who are not working. And yeah. not all of them, but some of them are definitely um, attributed to the fact that they're not, that they either never learnt or lapsed in their learning of the Braille code. And you only have to look at the UK and the US, in particular in the US, and, and you know, um, look at some of the research, which very clearly aligns um, high career prospects with proficient use of Braille. And if, you, if you're not able to do that, if you don't understand how the written word works, if you don't understand the norms of being able to write in, you know, uh, English to understand how to use punctuation, it it will scream out at people before you even get to an interview, um, which yeah. which is really really sad, really really tough I think for people. So I think there's there's a there's a need to to really explain to people why Braille is important. We're now educating a a really a really good group of smart blind and low vision kids, many of whom by the way are dual learners, which is interesting. They're using um, low vision for some bits. They're using they're using print for some things and they're using Braille for other things. They're going to be very well served in the future. But the um, the working adult population now who want to learn or relearn Braille should be supported and facilitated to do so because it is definitely in their interest. I go back to um, something I heard years ago from the um, the broadcaster Peter White of the BBC who's very well known, he's blind, he's been, he's been around for a long time and he's written at least two books. He might have written three at this stage, but yeah. he was asked years ago by somebody, Peter, how can I, somebody, uh, somebody who was blind said to him, how can I be like you and work, work, work at the BBC? You know, you're, you're clearly very successful. How can I get to where you are? And he said, you need to do two things. You need to learn Braille and then you need to read Braille well. So, you know, learning Braille and I suppose reading Braille on its own is not enough. You need to be able to do it all the time and do yeah. it quickly. And I suppose, like any other skill, it's easier to acquire that skill in childhood as opposed to later in life. It, it, um, it is. It is. And also, I think later in life, and one of the roles I had at the National Council for the Blind, I managed what is now called the National Training Centre for, for nearly 10 years. And one of the challenges we always had was and it's exactly the point you've made when you're when you're younger, you know, you can be more prescriptive with kids. You have yeah. to do this and that's it. And there's no real discussion about it. You just do it when it's adults. It's a lot more tricky. And I remember I always go back to this. We had a conversation with a lady who had come in to see us and sort of said, oh, no, I will. I wouldn't. We were telling her what was on offer and somebody mentioned Braille and she said, oh, no, I wouldn't be interested in Braille. And then we started chatting about other things she did. And one of the things she missed most was was when she had lost her vision or she was losing her vision quickly was the ability to cook and she missed knowing about her spices and what she had. And I said to her, what about if you learned some Braille so you could label your spices? 
and suddenly she realized she saw this as a gateway to hang on if i can use my spices again it might be worth investing a bit of time to learn braille this yeah. lady is now consuming consuming braille books from the ncbi library oh and brilliant so it does it does work but you have to find that little reason for people to learn Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, whereas, as you say, in in, in childhood, it, it's a different experience. And I'm yeah. sure the children who are using Braille and going through the education system now are having an entirely different experience than, than what you experienced. Absolutely. And it's much easier now to get access to information. Uh, people can really work. In, in fact, in some respects, the Braille users in a class, a mainstream class, are accessing um, are accessing their textbooks quicker than their sighted peers. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, because yeah. they're able to jump to, you know, someone says open page 27 and the Braille student can key in page 27 and it's open. Everyone else is flicking through the pages on their books, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I, I just think of it, it, it's a fa fascinating area and it's so unique to individuals who are blind or vision impaired. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, it, it unlocks such independence for them as well. As you rightly said, it's a, it's a gateway to employment, it's a gateway to leisure activities, it's a gateway to, to so many um, participative things in, in society. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I suppose the, the, uh, the, the last question I have for you, Stuart, is, is the one I ask um, all my guests is, what one piece of advice would you give another person who's been recently diagnosed with a sight loss condition? Yeah, and it's a, it's a great question, isn't it? And I'm always very conscious to as I as I thought as I think about this question, June, I suppose I, I kind of think everyone's experience and journey of sight loss is different. Yeah. And the way in which people will react to and respond to a significant change in their life is different. So I'll answer that on the on the, I suppose, with all that said. And I think the best advice I can give is, you know, don't be a don't be afraid to ask for help and ask or just ask questions. There is, there are so many people out there, everyone, and I think there's no question that someone hasn't heard before. And there's nothing that somebody can't try to find out with you or uh, on your behalf or help you. Um, I, I think, and again, from having worked many years um, at NCBI, a lot of the feedback we would have heard from people that we were working with was that, you know, the services are great and it's great to have X, Y and Z on the technology and all that. But the thing that people keep coming back to is the peer support to, yeah. to sort of to be able to sit in a group and say and someone says, did you know you can do this with your phone? You can, you know, um, you can recognize currency with your phone. Did you know there's an app for that? And I didn't know that. And someone someone then takes out their phone and starts showing the group and and. I used to think sometimes all you need to do is put people in a room and just let that energy happen. So peer support, finding networks, talking to people, and you know something that it's okay to have those off days where you just don't want to talk to people as well. Um, I'm also very conscious when I think about these things that the experiences I have had as someone who's congenitally blind are very, very different to somebody who has lost their vision or is losing their vision and all the trauma that that involves as well so Definitely. i suppose yeah. i would i would also say you know um just like be kind to yourself give yourself a break it's a huge amount of things going on and you know reach out to all the services that are out there fair point yeah as you, as you rightly say that each individual's experiences are are unique to themselves 
there's areas of commonality, but um, it is a, an individual experience that uh, everyone has to go through um, who is receiving a, a sight loss condition. Yeah. Um, I suppose for now, Stuart, I would just like to thank you again for your time and your passion for Braille. I've learned so much um, and uh, thank you for sharing so much. And um, as always, if anyone is interested in accessing NCBI services, please feel free to call the info line 1-800-911-250 or jump onto our website, ncbi.ie. But for now, thanks a million. Cheers, June. Thank you very much.